0: Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. We are going through, through our series. We're continuing through this journey through the Bible. And, and our series we've, we've titled The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And, and this is a series where we explore some of the major stories and, and writings of the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And, and as we discover this story, or as we read through the story of the Bible, we're discovering that there is this love that transcends all things, a love that encompasses all people, a love that is given freely and completely with no conditions. And so, currently in our series, we are going through the book of Isaiah. So we're reading through the book and the writings of this prophet named Isaiah, and he's a prophet who ministered uh, in the kingdom of Judah sometime during the uh, 720 and 700 BCE, before Common Era, before Christ. And, And Isaiah was a prophet who ministered to the kingdom of Judah while the Assyrian nation, while the Assyrian army was conquering much of the Judean countryside. And at this point in time, in the ministry of Isaiah, and in the the ministry of the kingdom, um, the the country of Assyria, the nation of Assyria, had already destroyed the kingdom of Israel to the north, and now they were beginning to conquer the land of Judah as well. But what we find in the prophecies of Isaiah is that we find significant hope. We find this hope of a coming Messiah, of a savior who would free Israel from, from captivity, but who would also eventually free all nations from under the slavery to sin and to death. And this Messiah that would come, that Isaiah prophesies about, would come to establish this kingdom of order, this kingdom of love and peace on the world. And that's what Isaiah calls the day of the Lord. So when you read through the book of Isaiah and you read the day of the Lord, that's the, the event, the moment that Isaiah is talking about. This event in the future where the Messiah would come to, to set complete order all over all things, would destroy sin and death, and then would bring, into this, uh, bring us into this kingdom of peace. Uh, so today we're starting with our reading Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26, starting in verse 3, should be available on the screen for you to follow along if you want to follow along. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you are welcome to join us uh, with, with your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 26, starting in verse 3. So Isaiah starts off uh, by saying this in, in verse 3. He says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. says in verse 4, trust in the lord forever for the lord the lord himself is the rock eternal he humbles those who dwell on high he lays the lofty city low he levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust verse 6 of isaiah 26 feet trample it down the feet of the oppressed the footsteps of the poor the path of the righteous is level you the upright one make the way of the righteous smooth yes Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts, Isaiah says. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. I'm going to jump down to verse 20 here and read verses 20 and 21. And so Isaiah continues, he says, Go, my people. Enter your rooms and shut the door behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until this wrath, this judgment, has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling place to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood that is shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. So Isaiah is reciting a song of praise. If you read the title of of this chapter here in your Bibles, most of them will say that it is a song of praise. Is is it a prophetic song? song of praise. It is a song of praise for a time that has not yet happened, but a time that is going to be coming. And so verse one starts off, we didn't read verse one, but verse one starts off in that day. And, and Isaiah is referring to the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord that Isaiah is, is expecting. This is the day of the Lord that Isaiah prophesies about. A day, a, a day that is about deliverance and, and judgment. And so this song, this song of praise, we see carefully balanced, deliverance and judgment. We see this hopeful expectation of good things to come, but we also see this judgment. And Isaiah says, calls it in, in verse 20, this wrath of God. Verse 20 says, hide away until this wrath of God is passed by. And so we see these people, Isaiah at least, is calling these people, the, the people of God, to praise God both for the salvation and for God's judgment and justice. He says the way of the righteous is made smooth, it isn't tumultuous, it isn't rocky, it isn't uneven, it isn't crooked, it is made smooth. In fact, he says those corrupt powers who have set themselves up on high, Isaiah says they are brought low and they are humbled, and the poor and the oppressed walk over them in conquest." So this idea of walking over something was this idea of conquering something. You've already conquered it, so you walk over it and you claim it. And so Isaiah is saying this, all those powers of corruption that have set themselves up on high are brought low through the judgment, and the poor and the oppressed gain victory over oppression over all these other things. And so it's this idea that, that through God's judgment, Isaiah says this, that, that the world is taught right living, that the world is taught righteousness. And so judgment comes as a precursor then to this righteousness that we find on the earth. That's what Isaiah says in verse nine. So for today's sermon, we're gonna focus on this portrayal of judgment in Isaiah 26 and 27. And so our first lesson today that we find in, in chapter 26 is this. Our first lesson is this. Judgment brings justice okay judgment brings justice this is so important to the book of isaiah really to the whole bible is this idea that that the day of the lord is coming and in that day of the lord the judgment of the lord is not an event of fear and sorrow it is not a reason to be afraid but rather the judgment is an event of praise and celebration because you read this isaiah 26 and it says a song of praise and then you read the Song of Praise, and you might think, oh, deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. But then scattered among the Song of Praise is this idea of judgment and justice. If you read your Bible really carefully, you'll notice that the idea of judgment is often accompanied with the idea of praise. And we've treated, unfortunately, we've treated this end-time theology in such a way that has led both the pulpit and the mainstream media to portray the judgment day as a day of great Fear. If you find any modern movie or TV show that has these these themes, the themology of the Judgment Day, you will often find an event that is full of maybe volcanoes exploding, maybe robots coming from the future, Terminator Judgment Day, I mean (laughs) the title's right there, right? You'll find all of these events and if you watch these movies and these TV shows, none of those events inspire happiness, right? None of those events inspire praise. They're moments of fear. But, that, but that's not what the Bible is talking about. The day of judgment isn't a moment, isn't a, an event of fear. Every, every portrayal in these movies and mainstream media is, is fire, it's brimstone. We even talk about it sometimes, unfortunately, from the pulpit. Fire and brimstone, destruction and suffering. And while the Bible certainly uses that symbolism oftentimes in its portrayals of the judgment, you'll be hard-pressed to find any judgment that isn't accompanied by songs of praise. There is no judgment in the Bible that is just fire and brimstone and sadness, and it's like, that's it, that's the end of the story. It's always accompanied with songs of praise, deliverance, justice. Whenever the Bible speaks of God's judgment, it is in celebration of the justice that God is bringing to the things that are so deeply broken in the world around us. The judgment of God brings the kind of justice that finally punishes evil for all of the wrong that is happening in the world. You see, in our own lives, in our own systems, we rejoice when we see that evil people are brought to justice, right? When you read about it in the news, when you, watch it, when you watch it on the news, you rejoice when people are brought to justice. When those who have com- committed war crimes or, or have committed atrocities, when they're arrested, when they're tried, we breathe a sigh of relief knowing that justice has prevailed, right? when we know that there are sexual predators that are caught and imprisoned, when there are murders that are going around rampantly murdering people and they're apprehended, when when we know that there's high levels of of corruption in different businesses or, or, or systems or politics or whatever, when we know that they're discovered and uprooted and taken out, we rejoice because there is justice. We rejoice when we see good finally triumphing over evil. We have this innate sense in us that celebrates the punishment of evil and the carrying out of justice and we may not all celebrate or subscribe to the notion of capital punishment or other forms of corporal punishment but we celebrate this manifestation of good conquering evil because we know in our hearts that to allow evil to continue is equally a perversion of justice as the evil that is committed in the first place. He has followed, right? To allow evil to continue without punishment, without justice, is equally a perversion of justice as the evil that is committed in the first place. You see, God's plan was never to allow evil to continue forever. In fact, from the very beginning of time, God had been pointing forward to a time when evil would be completely eradicated, where sin would be no more, and where people would live in complete complete freedom and peace and unity. And this is what we celebrate. We celebrate God's justice when it comes with God's judgment. You see, judgment brings justice. God's judgment is to bring justice to those who are continuing to do evil and have fully rejected repentance and change. And and when I was younger, when I was younger, I don't know about how you guys ever felt, but I always was worried about being one of those people that rejected Jesus. You know, like I always thought like, God, if I could only know when you were coming back, then I would just like repent at the last second and then everything would be okay. You guys ever thought about that? You guys ever been in that situation where you're just like, man, like, God, like, if I could know when I was dying on my deathbed, I'd be like, Jesus, forgive me, and then all's good. Right? But, but that's not how salvation works. Salvation isn't about that. Because salvation is far more simple. It's not this waiting until your deathbed to to be forgiven. It's not waiting until the second coming of Jesus to be forgiven. That's not it. That's not how salvation works. Salvation, in fact, is far more simple. Salvation is as simple as believing in Jesus. That's it. That's it. See, when I was growing up, I struggled with this idea. Because people would ask you, do you think you're saved? or are you saved? And, and what's your response most often than not? If you, if you were raised like me, like I hope so, hopefully, I'd like to think so, but the Bible doesn't leave you in uncertainty. The Bible doesn't leave you in uncertainty. The Bible doesn't say, here it is, let's hope you take it. Oh, I, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. No, no, the Bible is pretty clear. It's pretty simple. You guys, I think, mostly you should know this, right? John 3.16, right? And like, if you don't know it, then it's probably, you've probably seen it on a bumper sticker somewhere, right? John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever is forgiven at the last minute, whoever works the hardest, Whoever gives the most, whoever's good outweighs sin, no it's whoever what believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3:17, what does that say? <laughs> Jesus says, "For I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through me." That's what Jesus says. Salvation is really that simple. Do you believe in Jesus? You're saved. It seems too easy (laughs) you want to do something for it don't you but you don't have to that's what the bible says do you believe in jesus you're saved that's it there's no additions no exceptions no conditions when we believe in jesus our lives become transformed when we allow jesus to influence influence our hearts through the power of the holy spirit working in us it begins to change us to transform this sinful nature into a nature that better represents the character of God. It's not about canceling all of your sins. It's not about being completely forgiven and never doing anything wrong again. No, Jesus says, all you have to do is believe in me and I will take care of the rest. I will take care of the rest, Jesus says. We know the kind of evil and destructive power of sin in the world. We know how much sin poisons creation. You see, God's judgment it's not about destroying creation. It's not about destroying His creation. Rather, God's judgment is about setting things right. Of bringing a justice that destroys sin while saving us. Don't forget that part. Because we often focus on the destruction of the sin, but God says, no, I have come not to condemn the world, but to save the world through me. You see, God's judgment brings justice. So we keep reading Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27, starting in verse 1. It says, In that day, this is the day of the Lord, the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce and great and powerful sword. He will punish Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. Verse 3, Now the Lord is speaking, I, the Lord, watch over it, this vineyard. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me. I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. Isaiah links this day of the Lord with the defeat of this monstrous creature called the Leviathan, this great ancient sea serpent. And God punishes and slays the serpent with his sword. And this was, this was a common eastern myth. A lot of other religions had a similar myth of their, of their main patron deity defeating this, this giant serpent. The idea of this myth was that their God was defeating evil. Leviathan, this serpent, represented everything that was chaotic and evil in the world. And so the myth was that their God was destroying this evil. Oftentimes, the myth had this continual, never-ending battle between their God and, Goliath, or, and Leviathan. Uh, but, but this year, Isaiah is linking this thing. He says, our God is defeating evil, not just in this continual struggle that never ends, but our God is defeating evil once and for all, completely right? And so Isaiah is describing then, he, he kind of goes on to this different uh, analogy in verse 2. He, he, he describes God as one who is carefully caring for this fruitful vineyard. One who is doing everything in his power to care and nurture for this vineyard. In fact, God says, I care for it, I guard it day and night so that no harm may come to it, so that no one may come to harm it. And God says something that seems almost out of place. He says in verse 4, he says, I am not angry. And it's interesting that this happens because we're reading about this caring God who nurtures a vineyard, right? Reading with This God who is carefully watching over it, guarding it day and night so that no harm may come to it. And all of a sudden he switches and says, I am not angry. Why do you feel like God has the need to say that? He says it because of what comes next. He says, in caring for this vineyard, this fruitful vineyard that I love, Unfortunately, I have to come to destroy the briars and the thorns. He says, sometimes these bushes, these briars, these thorns, they come up and they threaten to swallow the fruitful vineyard. They threaten to destroy it and turn everything into chaos. And so God says that in caring for my vineyard, I have to come to destroy the briars and the thorns. Because when they grow rapidly, if they are left unchecked, they will destroy the vineyard. And so when these briars, when these thorns come up, the caretaker has to step in to prevent the briars and the thorns from growing. It's not out of anger that this action is taken. Isaiah wants you to be really clear about that. It's not out of anger that the briars and the thorns are destroyed. Rather, it is out of love and care and protection for the vineyard. And so here's our next lesson. Our second lesson is this. Judgment is not anger. Judgment is not anger. It is easy to feel like God's judgment is an expression of anger against sinners. It's not so much an expression of anger against sinners as it is an action against sin. Do you guys, can you guys tell the difference? It's not an action against people, the creation that he loves, but rather it is an action against the attributes and the characters that continue to perpetuate a broken system and that continue to break the creation that God so cares about. And the Bible often describes this judgment as the pouring out of God's wrath. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 26, verse 20, says the same thing, right? Hide away while this wrath pours out. But, But God's wrath is not a wrath as we might understand the word to mean. God's wrath is not an outburst of uncontrollable emotion. God's wrath is not a vengeful, violent punishment. What the Bible actually considers God's wrath is not this violent outburst, but rather it is the action of justice that God takes against the fullness of sin in the world. That is God's wrath. God's wrath is this indignation with the evil and corruption of the world. God's wrath is the action that he takes to bring sin to an end. It is the action that he takes to prevent the thorns and the briars from destroying the fruitful vines. This action is not anger. It's love. Judgment is not anger. It is love. And God's declaration through Isaiah is that he is not angry with his people. He says it. He stops there in the middle of the analogy to say, I am not angry. I want you to be clear about that. I am not angry. In fact, he offers refuge. He invites us to make peace with him. He says, even if you are thorns and briars, even if I have to march against you to protect the vineyard, he says, come, make peace with me. He says, yes, let us make peace. He repeats it twice. Oftentimes when the same phrasing is repeated twice in the Hebrew passage, it is meant to signify great importance. And God wants you to know this peace is possible. This peace is possible. We can make peace. You see, God is not hostile towards us. Rather, it is the sin in us that is hostility against God's goodness, God's love, God's order in the world. And so that's why... In Isaiah's vision, those who do evil are compared to briars and thorns. You know, briars and thorns are these really like tangled up bushes that have all of these like thick thorns on them. And so Isaiah is describing them this way because the very nature of the briars and the thorns cause harm. The very nature of these things strangle the vines of God's vineyard. It is our sinful nature that harms and strangles the good that God is trying to cultivate in the world around us and in us. And so God says, I invite you to make peace. I invite you to lay down your weapons of sin and evil and hostility against this good order. And he invites us to accept this transformative spirit that has the power to change our very nature and make us fruitful vines. God says, if you are briars and thorns, come and make peace, because I can make you fruitful vines. You see, God's focus is peace and protection. And so his judgment is not an act of anger. It is an act of protection for the order of creation, for the creation that he loves. God's judgment is not anger. We're going to jump down to one final verse one final verse for our last lesson, Isaiah chapter 27, verse 9. Isaiah 27, verse 9 says this, By this, then, will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, of Judah's sin, when Judah makes all of the altar stones to be like limestone crushed to pieces, where no asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. So, Isaiah gives this key marker for the atonement of Judah's sin. See, atonement is a word that is connected to the system of sacrifice, this system that God had established with Moses long ago. Atonement is a word that basically means being made one with God. This idea is that sin separates us from our Creator. And so the sacrifice has made atonement by clearing our sins and reuniting us with God, making us one with the Creator again. So atonement is this action that brings this division between us and God to a close. It bridges this gap. So Isaiah says this, Judah's sins are atoned for by this. By this then, Judah's sins are atoned for. The this is the day of the judgment. That's what he's referring to. By this then, Judah's sins are atoned for. By the judgment, Judah's sins are atoned for. And the result or the fruit of this atonement, of this forgiveness of sins, would be the altar stones being crushed to pieces like limestone. The destruction of all of the ashrapoles and all of the incense altars. And so, so Isaiah says this. Isaiah says, by the judgment, Judah's sins are atoned for. And as a result, the fruit of, they would then destroy and give up all of their idols. They would, they would crush all of the symbols of idolatry into pieces just like limestone. Now, limestone was this rock that the people would crush to a very, very fine powder, just like chalk dust. And they would use limestone as mortar and as a sealing agent in some of like, uh, the, their water reservoirs. And so to be useful, limestone had to be crushed very, very fine, like a fine powder. So this destruction of the idols that Isaiah is talking about is not just a pushing over of the poles or the stones or or, or the images. It's not just as simple as taking a sledgehammer to it and then breaking into tiny pieces. No, Isaiah is describing an intentional destruction of everything that is connected to idolatry. They wouldn't just break it into tiny little pieces. They would have to take those pieces and intentionally grind it into a powder, just like limestone. This process of grinding things into a powder would completely remove or destroy any sacredness that they would have attached to these objects, and they would ensure that they couldn't be used again. Because if you destroyed an idol, if you just took a hammer to it, you could easily glue the pieces back together, right? But once you grind it to a fine powder, good luck trying to put it back together. Isaiah wants us to see that this devotion to God, that this removal of our idols has to be complete. It's a complete and utter destruction of those idols. We have to take steps to make sure that even those things that we have set up as idols don't get set up as idols again in the same way. But there's an important distinction that takes place in this verse. And there's a distinction that I really want you to focus on. Before the idols are destroyed, before they have full commitment to God, there is forgiveness and atonement. Did you guys read that? It's not the other way around, because we'd often think of it this way, that we've got to give up the idols and destroy everything, and then we'll have forgiveness and atonement. But that's not the way that Isaiah phrases the verse. It's very intentional. Before there is the destruction of the idols, there is forgiveness and atonement. In other words, full devotion and commitment to God are the fruit or the result of forgiveness, not a precursor or prerequisite to it. Did you guys follow? Because Isaiah says this, by this then will Jacob's uh, guilt be atoned for. This then will be the fruit of the full removal of his sin. So the removal of the sin happens before there's, there is the results. So here's our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is this, judgment brings justification. The order of of things according to Isaiah is this. We are atoned for, we are forgiven or justified, then the destruction of our idols takes place. I want to explain to you what this word justification means because it's not a word that we use very often in in kind of modern languages, but it's it's a word that is very important to the theology of the Bible. Justification, biblically, is a legal term. It is connected to the system of sacrifice, to the work of Jesus on the cross. The equivalent... the of of, in our modern world of this legal term justification might be acquittal if you guys are familiar with the word acquittal or acquitted the, the definition of acquittal is this let me read it to you the definition of acquittal is to release or discharge from debt or other liability it is a setting free or deliverance from the charge of an offense by verdict of a jury judgment of a court or other legal process Acquittal is also a judgment that, is pers- that a person is not guilty of the crime with which the person has been charged. Now, an acquittal doesn't mean that the person is truly innocent, right? You can be acquitted and be guilty. You can be found not guilty by a jury, by a judgment, by other legal process, and still be guilty. I mean, there are examples of it in our modern day. There are examples of presidents who have been acquitted, even though they are clearly very guilty. So when the Bible says that we are justified through faith, through the death of Jesus, it says that the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf is is to fulfill this legal process to allow us to be declared not guilty. So justification for us happens not because we truly aren't guilty. It isn't because we're actually innocent. Rather, justification happens because Jesus has made it so. Our sinfulness makes us guilty. We actually deserve the punishment of this eternal death sentence. That's what sin brings. We deserve that. But instead, instead of receiving the punishment of our guilt, we are justified because the punishment for our sins has already been paid for. Someone else has carried the sentence for us. You see, Jesus died on the cross as punishment for our sins. Even though Jesus was perfectly innocent, he took on our guilty verdict so that we could walk free, so that we could be acquitted, so that we could be justified. But we cannot be justified until there is the due legal process. Are you guys following? The justification, that's the verdict, happens after the judgment. The judgment then is something that we get to rejoice in and praise about because we know even before the trial takes place that we are going to be declared innocent. You guys hear that? We know before the trial takes place that we're walking free. So you can walk into that trial, you can walk into that judgment lifting your hands in praise because you know there's going to be no guilty verdict. The punishment was already given. You were already justified. You were already acquitted before the trial even begins. But the justification can't happen without the legal process, without the judgment. So Isaiah says this by this our, song, our sins are atoned for. In the judgment, then, we are justified. You see, judgment brings justification. I invite the band to come on up as we begin to close here. See, Isaiah wants us really badly. He wants us to see that judgment is not an event of fear. It is not an event of sorrow. It is not an event that we have to dread coming, but rather the event, this this judgment is a celebration. It is a rejoicing because judgment brings justice. In the day of the Lord and through God's judgment, all things are set right in the world. All pain and suffering in the world is brought to an end. All evil and wickedness we see is brought to justice. And even though we are responsible for some of that brokenness, even though we are responsible for some of that sin, we don't have to fear a judgment because we, are no, we already know that we are saved in Jesus. When we believe in him, we are declared innocent through his sacrifice. You see, God's justice is what brings us back to this place of peace and perfect love before sin ever entered into the world. And God's judgment is not about violence or vengeance because God's judgment is not anger. Unfortunately, so many of our modern interpretations of God really isn't biblical. We've confused God with this Zeus-like deity. Somewhere along the lines that we've we've gotten this this idea of God from, from the Greek notion of Zeus. And so we picture God as this bearded man sitting on the thrones in the heavens throwing lightning bolts of judgment. But that's not really who God is. That's not an accurate portrayal that the Bible paints. You see, God's wrath, it isn't this temper tantrum. It isn't this violent outburst of this capricious deity, but rather God's wrath is his action against the corruption and the evil and the sin that destroys his beloved creation. God's action against sin is not carried out in violent anger against sinners. It is done in careful protection of all that is good. You see, God cares for His creation, and He wants to do whatever it takes to prevent evil from destroying us, and so He invites us to come to make peace, to put away our destructive natures, to accept His Spirit, and in fact, He's made a way for us to make peace. He hasn't left the responsibility on us. He sent His Son, Jesus, so that through His sacrifice, through His death, peace is made possible. And so, we can begin destroying our idols. We can begin destroying and toppling all of these things that compete with God in our lives because we know that judgment brings justification. We don't need to actually be guilt-free, to be sin-free, to be perfect in order to be justified. Justification happens not because we're truly not guilty, not because we're actually innocent. Judgment happens despite our guiltiness. See, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the punishment that Jesus took on himself, made it possible for us to be justified to be acquitted, to be declared not guilty. And so Isaiah says this, he says, come, destroy your idols, not to be justified, but because you are already justified. You see, Jesus has declared us not guilty. We have been acquitted and justified through Jesus, through God's judgment, through the due legal process, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we are justified, our sins, are forgiven and atoned for. And so that now, now that we know that we truly are already forgiven, now that we know that we're entering into the judgment already free, we can begin the work of toppling the idols that are in our heart and give our full devotion to the one who brings justification, the one who has forgiven our sins to Jesus. Amen.